0: Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, we'll take a look at getting more women elected. Peggy Nash, five-time MP, has a book on the topic just ahead of the municipal election. The Thai Cats snapped their losing streak, but some of the same problems are happening. Rick Zamprin, sports director and host of the fifth quarter, chimes in. And one of the basics of human life is water. But for so many in this country, there isn't clean water to drink. That can change. Jeff Burnett, one of the executives at the Dreamcatcher Foundation and head of affairs for water activist Autumn Peltier, tells us how. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now.
1: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Hoping to connect with Peggy Nash, who is the author of a book on getting women elected. And uh, we are, are, we've are we had two of three elections in this area so far, federal, provincial, and soon-to-come municipal And Ontario's recent election in June, there was a little bit of a backtrack in female MPPs being elected after hitting a record high in 2018. There's 39% female representation at Queen's Park. Some provinces and territories have almost half female representation. Makes you wonder what female representation should be or will be around the municipal council table later this year. Joining us to discuss this further is Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic and author of Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. Good morning, Peggy. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Uh, I guess step one is actually getting more women on the ballot.
2: Well, yes, that is true. And that is both women deciding that they want to run uh, and uh, parties or, or organizations being willing to promote women running and helping them get elected. And once they get elected, helping them succeed.
0: And, and how do they help women succeed? What kind of support should women have?
2: Well, we all know, uh, whether it's in politics or in the media, that there can be a backlash to women in prominent public positions. And so uh, developing strategies to uh, help deal with any negative backlash, supporting candidates, providing them with the kind of uh, training and support just to be successful. For example, one MPP said to me, you know, it was such a struggle to get elected. But once I got elected, there was like this hidden curriculum that I knew nothing about, all the hidden rules and all the 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 normal expected uh, behaviors and uh, so, so finding out what those rules are, but, but even more than that, um, uh, an MP told me that walking into the House of Commons was like the bros dead. It was so, the, the culture was so uh, macho, uh, so raw, 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 so antagonistic to women who really want to get things done and perhaps sometimes want to cooperate with colleagues who may be in other parties. That is not something that is encouraged, but I think what Canadians, Ontarians, Torontonians want is just to have government that works, and they don't really care which party delivers for the most part. They just want their politicians to work for them, and I think that's often why people get involved in politics, but the party system can sometimes discourage that kind of cooperation.
0: Well, why do you think that it's important to have female and, and for that matter, minority representation?
2: Yes, and uh, quite rightly, it's not just electing more women, but more diverse communities generally. Why is this important? Well, if, for example, half, more than half our population is women, if they're not adequately represented, their views don't get taken into account. Why has it taken us generations to take... The the steps that we've taken today in getting a national childcare program. Why have we not dealt effectively with the issue of violence against women? Why is there no um, uh, universal access to mental health services? I think that having women's voices uh, having women's voices there, having uh, diverse communities represented, means that their views. Their reality, their opinions, their decisions get heard. And I think we just get better decisions.
0: Well, I, I know in Hamilton, we've seen it, uh, London, Niagara as well. There's been substantial pushback against uh, female municipal councillors and elected representatives. In some cases, some pretty nasty stuff online. And mm-hmm. in a few other cases, I know here in Hamilton it's happened certainly, uh, a small group showing up at people's homes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is designed, as I'm sure your listeners know, to basically shut people down. It's designed to say, we don't want to hear from you, basically shut up. And so my advice to candidates or, or elected people is to speak up louder and um, not get isolated as an individual. Um I know one one person that I interviewed in my book was targeted uh, with Islamophobia, and she was really, really uh, attacked publicly it, to the point where it became a security threat for her. Now, um, we know some people have, have decided not to run in cases like that, but what happened with her is not only her team... Came around her, but the community came around her, and decided to stand up for her and denounce the attacks that were that were being hurled at her. And she was successful; she was elected. And I think that's what needs to happen. Uh, so, for example, when the former environment minister faced slurs, uh, the verbal slurs and, and uh, written slurs on her her constituency office. Um, you know, I think what was needed was people coming around her for the community to stand up and support her and denounce that kind of behavior. Um, and, you know, I think we need more parties to take the kind of action that we've seen in some cases where parties actively recruit uh, candidates, even greater uh, a greater number of women candidates than men uh, with the plan to end up with uh, at least equal representation. And that has been successful where it has been trying.
0: Well, I'm glad you touched on uh, some of the uh, women that you profile in your book, Canadian women who have run for all levels of government, um, and some have had a, a difficult
2: ride, but they would all do it again. Yes, absolutely, and I say that for myself personally. I, I ran five times, and sometimes I won, sometimes I lost, but it's, it's an incredible experience, and I, I don't encourage women blindly to get involved. I always say, you know, look before you leap and do a real check with your family, your support systems, your own gut to make sure this is what you want. But having said that, if you decide to do it, uh, it's an incredible experience. You can build uh, a, a really solid team. You can inspire supporters and volunteers, and it's it's just an incredibly empowering experience to use your voice and all of the all of the goals that you have, the issues that you want to champion, and, and to use the power of your voice to speak up for those issues and. You know, it's great to be successful, to win office, to make a difference, but even when you're not successful, even when you don't win a campaign, this team-building exercise, the empowerment of your voice, uh, speaking out with your community, embracing your community, it's, it's an incredible experience. And even where women have faced, I talked about a case of Islamophobia, I've spoken to women who faced racism, terrible sexism, ageism, but the positives by far outweighed the negatives. And I I say to women, never underestimate the power of your voice. Use it, speak up, uh, run for office. If this is something that you have ever considered, find out more. Read my book, <laughs> but find out more. Talk to women who are in office, and think seriously about it because uh, it is an incredible experience, and you really can change the world by doing that. One of the
0: things that can be a barrier for uh, women getting into politics and, and running for election can be the funding, getting the money mm-hmm. in order to run.
2: Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. it it does cost. It's not a free venture. No, it's not. But, you know, sometimes we uh, absorb the messages from the United States where it can take millions of dollars to run a campaign. That's really not the case here in Canada. Um, uh, You know, I think when I ran federally, the funding limits were about, in my my riding, about $120,000. Now, that's not nothing. I don't have that cash sitting around. Uh, But... You know, what I, what I encourage women to, to do is to think about their networks. Everyone that, that they know, whether they're involved in politics or not, it could be family friends, it could be community members, um, people they know from sports, their kids play, whatever your networks are, student networks, uh, whatever your networks are. And if you decide to do something like run for office, Um, being clear about why you want to do it, and then going out and, and getting support, including financial support, from people who know you and trust you. And again, you don't have to do this all by yourself. Yes, as a candidate, you can pick up the phone and ask for money. I didn't like it, but I did it. But you can also build a team of fundraisers who can go out and ask for money. And it doesn't, you know, there are funding limits federally, I think it's about $1,600 a person, And, and that's a lot of money. But, you know, most donations are small donations. Somebody chips in $25, $50. Everything makes a difference. And if you don't raise the maximum amount, you can still run a decent campaign using more social media and getting out there and just talking to people one-on-one. And that is, in fact, the most effective way to campaign.
0: Would you suggest for somebody, a woman who wants to
2: eventually get into
0: politics, to start building some of those networks?
2: Absolutely. And it's something that historically disadvantaged women because, uh, of course, before women had greater participation in the labor market, they had fewer networks. But I would say today, women have their own networks, whether it's community networks, work networks, parent networks, whatever, cultural networks, they have their own networks. And that is that is really important. And, and fostering those networks, and it doesn't mean you're, it's not transactional, you know, I'm involved in this network, so I can build up my resume so I can run for office. But it means being authentic, you know, I, I really care about the kids in our community. That's why I'm involved in this parents group or this school group. And people, I think, sense that authenticity. And those networks, they can, they can, you know, I, I guess financially pay off in terms of um, people supporting you to run for office. But they will support you because they believe in you, uh, not because they think they're going to get something from it, you know. I mean, I wasn't shy about, you know, asking my my dentist, my, you know, former professors, you know, people that I work colleagues. If, you know, if you have good relationships and people believe that you're an authentic person who's going to, you know, really wants to make a difference, you'd be surprised how people will come out and support you, and um, if they think you're there for them and not just for yourself. And I think that's that's the important thing. You're there for your community, and people, people sense that.
0: Yeah, if they sense any insincerity at all, you're not going to get them to reach into their pocketbook.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not that everybody who runs for elected office is this most incredible, authentic person. You know, sometimes people... Will say, listen, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm the developer's friend. I just want to get real estate built. You're a developer. You would support me because I'm going to, you know, fight for laws that'll help you. So there, there are people who run, and and their support is transactional. But I would argue, if you are there for your community, uh, if you're there because you want to improve the school system, you want a better environment, you want, uh, I don't know, cycling paths, whatever your issue is i think people sense that uh, they know it they've seen it in your behavior and um those those networks those bonds are really important but you know as you as you go out a, as well and campaign you're going to meet people you know that's the main goal of of a campaign is to go out and connect with people in the community to to talk with as many community members as possible and they want to look you in the eye and know that you're authentic that they can trust you and that's how you build support so you don't have to start out with you know a hundred thousand people in your network but you know you're going to knock on tens of thousands of doors and hopefully persuade people that's what you do in a campaign and if you are really serious. You usually start doing this long before uh, a campaign is announced so that you're out there building support in the community.
0: Well, it's an old saying, but I think it's really true. Mean what you say and say what you mean.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think more than ever there's distrust in in quote-unquote elites people who I think are feeling... A lot of people are feeling um, insecure, and so there's distrust to people they perceive in power. So if you're going to go and ask for people's support, they want to be able to look you in the eye and see someone that they can relate to, that they can trust. And that's, you, you know, it's it, the best way to build that is person-to-person, door-by-door, speech-by-speech, and... um yeah, I, I you know, I, I think that authenticity is really fundamental to political support.
0: Well, if you're even considering running for office sometime in the future, you may want to pick up Peggy Nash's book, Women Winning Office, An Activist's Guide to Getting Elected. Peggy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A great thing happened at Tim Hortons Field over the weekend. The Thai Cats beat the Red Blacks 25-23, and they did so by the slimmest of margins. Here's RJ Broadbent with the call.
1: It's going to be a 54-yard field goal attempt to win the football game. Two 0-4 teams. It comes down to this. The snap, the hold, the kick... It's short. It's short. The game is over. The Tiger Cats get their first victory of the season.
0: Joining us now is Rick Zamperin, host of Good Morning Hamilton, and he's also sports director and host of the fifth quarter and a host of other things that we don't have time to get into. Uh, Rick (laughs) is joining us now. Rick, you know that old
1: sports ad? You're going to buy the whole seat, but you're only going to need the edge? Yes. I think that was true Saturday. (laughs) Uh, For the fourth quarter especially, yes, uh, that was very much true, because it was a nail butter. and I I think some fans were thinking, ah, you know, Ottawa has their second string quarterback, Hamilton has played well in stretches of the ballgame. This should be an easy win, <laughs> and it's never easy, and it was not easy on Saturday night. They won it, as you said, by the slimmest of margins.
0: Uh, okay, so what was good, what was bad, and you only have until 10.30.
1: Oh, yeah, okay, this is going to be tough then. Uh, the good, I would say the good is they finally won, right? They got the monkey off their back. They found a way to win when it seemed like they weren't going to do that. You know, about seven and a half minutes left in the ball game. Quarterback Dane Evans of the Ticats fumbles the ball. Ottawa picks it up. They have it. They score what they thought was potentially the game-winning touchdown and Cats fans here, there and everywhere were thinking, geez, here we go again. Like a repeat of the last loss in which Dane fumbles, Edmonton scoops it up, they score eventually and they win the ball game. But uh, the good is the Ticats found a way. So they had a couple of opportunities inside the red zone to score a touchdown. Matthew Schiltz, Hamilton's backup quarterback, throws an interception. And again, Ticats fans are thinking this is just not going to happen. But they get the ball back again. Dane Evans finally leads them back down the field and they score a touchdown. Then, you know, some controversy erupts because they're up 24-23, and, you know, the mindset is, do you go for one point, the extra point, to make it a two-point game, or do you go try to get the two-point conversion to make it a three-point game? And there's two different schools of thought. The thought that head coach Orlando Steinhauer thought is, let's get the extra point. It will negate any possibility of Ottawa going downfield. Kicking a field goal and tying the game and forcing it in overtime. The other school of thought is let's go for the two-point, get it, and force Ottawa to kick a field goal to at least tie so they go for the one point. They get the one point. It's 25-23. There's under a minute to play. Ottawa has the ball. They get to near midfield. And as we just heard the highlight from R.J. Broadhead, a 54-yard field goal fell inches shorts. The Ticats were that close to blowing another one. So that's the bad is it nearly erupted uh, you know, very badly for them. But, again, they got the win. That's the most important thing. And now they're on to B.C.
0: Okay, what's the biggest problem?
1: The biggest problem is, well, there's a few of them, uh, but the biggest one I would think would be consistency, uh, because for stretches, and we saw it even on Saturday night, they they play some pretty good football, offense, defense, special teams, but... Uh, come the third quarter, come the fourth quarter, it's like, who are these guys? What happened to this team? What are they doing wrong? What adjustments have they made that the other team is making that it's just not computing for them? So they have not played anywhere close to a full game, let alone even a half. Really, when you you know pile up all those uh, you know instances where they're when they're playing well, so the consistency or the lack thereof is probably the biggest issue.
0: Well, what about this thing with um, a turnover deep in their own zone? Mm-hmm in the in
1: the fourth quarter in the dying moments of the game yeah <laughs> it's like they're doing it again it seems to be and this is this happens in sports it seems to be contagious and sometimes when things go wrong it snowballs it you rarely see that though from game to game Um, You might see it in a game that, okay this is just not their night, right? They're not going to win this game. We can't do anything. Anything we try doesn't work. So, you know, you just kind of tip your cap to the other opponent and say, we'll we'll try again next time. But um, from game to game to game, it seems like they're making these big mistakes and it nearly cost them again. Not only the late game fumble, in which Ottawa was able to go ahead, but... Not going for two and instead going for one, ultimately it turned out, but that could have really been, you know, a, a massive omelet on the face of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Um, there was also,
0: uh, there seemed to be um, a trend of the first half being much better yeah. <laughs> and more alive and more dynamic than the second half.
1: Yeah, this, go ahead.
0: Well, I, I had heard that Orlando Steinauer had tried something a little different during practice last week, mm-hmm. which was halfway through practice, They actually go into the locker room like it's halftime, go through the same routines and then get back out on the field to try to snap that.
1: Well, it didn't work because (laughs) (laughs) they came out in the third quarter on Saturday and they put a big donut on the board and they didn't play well. Defensively, they did. Offensively, they did not. And in the fourth quarter, they got the one touchdown, which is all that they needed at the end of the day. But for whatever reason, the halftime adjustments they have made have not worked. And they've fallen flat, to be honest. The other team has made, you know, at halftime, both teams go into their locker rooms. You know, they discuss what worked and what didn't. And what, what if anything, do we have to change in the second half to kind of take advantage of what the other team has been doing not so well. And so every game this year, the Cats have made those adjustments, you would think, but they have not worked. And again, Saturday, the, whatever they had planned, Ottawa had an answer for. So... No, come this Thursday in BC, they better have a darn good plan because the Lions are a pretty good team. Yeah. Well, and that seems to be true of the West. We're in conversation with uh, Rick Zamprin, sports
0: director, also host of the fifth quarter, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. Um, how does a win change how the fifth quarter goes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good question because you would think that a victory would quiet the fan base. Oh, we're OK now. We're on. We're on the winning track. We'll be fine. Not so much Saturday, and it's probably because the way the game went and the way they almost lost, even though they won. It was so nuts on the fifth quarter that we actually went a half hour more than planned because the phone lines were continuously jammed. One person exits, that phone line is, you know, uh, scooped up really quickly. So I thought, hey, let's just keep going until no one is calling in again. So I'm not even sure what time we went to. I think it was 10 o'clock and uh, people were still kind of calling in, but... It's usually more, uh, let's say, entertaining after a loss, Uh, but it all depends on how they play. They could play amazingly well and lose the game, and people will still call in to say, fire everybody. You know, we need a whole new team. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tycat fans never short on opinions. That's true. Yeah. Did I see a tweet where somebody was suggesting that uh, the MVP of the game should be the cheerleaders?
1: We got actually a, a tweet and a couple of calls, and I said, listen, As great as a job that they do, they really have no influence on what happens between the lines. So I'm negating that vote. (laughs) It does not count. (laughs) Okay. As you mentioned, they're playing BC uh, on Thursday night. BC is a really good team, and if if no one has really clued into what's happening in British Columbia, it's an amazing story. Nathan York, Nathan Rourke is a Canadian quarterback. Uh, he learned from one of the best in Mike Riley last year. So this is really the first, I would say, star Canadian QB in a long, long time. You know, Russ Jackson is probably the all-time greatest. Canadian quarterback or quarterback in general and Nathan what he's doing in BC is absolutely amazing because he doesn't look flustered he's made some mistakes which every player will do but he has looked poised calculated calm um and has his team playing amazingly well and and as the as the story goes in BC he's the first one in the building he's the last one out he's soaking everything in he's playing really good football and this BC team is really fun to watch so there's two factors here number one Yes, the Tie Cats are coming off a win. But BC has been on the bye week So they have been, you know, preparing, resting Getting ready for this game At home. The Cats coming off A game on Saturday. They have a Short week to play Thursday night We'll only get in two practices today and Tomorrow, fly out Wednesday, and then Have to deal with the time change scenario as well It's going to be tough. If the Ticats win This game, it'll be a huge victory
0: Yeah. Now, we also have, what, the next Six games following the game in BC Are all East Coast teams.
1: Yes This is the stretch that I have termed make or break because you have over the next six weeks after this game, you have the Alouettes and the Argonauts for six consecutive weeks. So it's um, Alouettes, Argonauts, Argonauts, Alouettes, Argonauts, (laughs) Argonauts, culminating with the Labor Day Classic, that last one. And... This is it. I mean, those interdivisional games you have to win. I know we're going to talk about East and West, but the games that you play against other teams in your division, like Saturday against Ottawa, you have to win those. Because those are really kind of four-point games, right? You get two points. You keep the other team two points behind you. Um, So this is the big part of of the season. The Ticats have struggled. There's no doubt about that. But if they can find their game, find that consistency, figure out those halftime adjustments, and play their best football coming up over the next couple of months – they should be a playoff team, and they probably will be a playoff team.
0: Now, as you mentioned... We are going to talk about that East-West divide yeah. because it's
1: it's it's not just a divide. There's an escarpment there. There's a canyon. Maybe add <laughs> a skyscraper at the top of the canyon. Yeah, the East, uh, when you calculate the standings, uh, they have four wins and 15 losses. The West have 19 wins and seven losses. And I believe the stat East versus West, so Eastern teams playing against Western teams, they have won two out of the 16 games, which is not good. Um, what the issue is, we don't know. And this is nothing new. I mean, the the West has traditionally been, for whatever reason, the stronger of the two divisions. Um, whether it's recruiting, development, drafting, coaching, um, whatever the case is, the West has, has been the supreme division. Um, so much so, over the last couple of years, there's been some talk of, why doesn't the CFL implement one division? Have every team in. And yeah, that might continue the disparity, but it might also push the Eastern teams to maybe recruit better, put more money in that, uh, hire better coaches, whatever the case is. Uh, whether or not we'll see that, I don't know. The difficulty or the problem we run into is if you have Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto at the bottom of the standings come midseason, what's the impetus to go to the games now, right? So you're almost penalizing those teams who are at the bottom of the standings. So interesting debate. I don't think it's going to happen. If it does, probably it won't happen anytime soon.
0: There is something else that I wanted to touch on, and uh, uh, that's the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Yes. Because they're putting the rough in Rough Rider.
1: Uh, Yes, they have been. Uh, Garrett Marino, is that what you're referring to? Well... There's
0: that. <laughs> then there was that hit with just a helmet.
1: Yeah, there. Uh, yeah, so over the weekend in Touchdown Atlantic, the Argos play the Rough Riders and uh, Shaq Richardson of Saskatchewan, or um, of Toronto, and Duke Williams of Saskatchewan, got into it, uh, so much so that Duke spat in the face of one Shaq Richardson. Uh, there was, yeah, helmet throwing. Uh, really aggressive and you know this kind of publicity is not the publicity that the CFL wants right it wants exciting games it wants electric finishes it wants you know big play highlights not pushing and shoving and helmet throwing and spitting so that was really a huge cloud over TD Atlantic which at the end of the day was a phenomenal game great atmosphere the crowd came out um, and hopefully doesn't stunt any talk of hey we need a 10th team in Atlantic Canada to make it a five team division on each side so uh, overall, great game, horrible incident. And the Garrett Marino hit on Jeremiah Masoli, everyone by now I think has seen it. He's been suspended for four games, an all-time high in the Canadian Football League. In my opinion, not high enough. Not necessarily just because of the hit, which was bad, but it was the antics afterwards. The celebrating, the hands raised, that, hey, I just put out you know, a superstar quarterback in Ottawa's franchise QB and we're going to win the game thanks to me. I think that was horrible. I think he should have got at least double what he got.
0: Well, and, and it took the team a long time to yeah. put out a
1: statement about this. Exactly. And not only that, I mean, head coach Craig Dickinson comes out and says, listen, and because there were racial overtones, there was, as they called it, um, a am uh, not even sure that the term that they used it. It was about uh, Jeremiah's heritage mm-hmm. and not calling it racism. But for Craig Dickinson, the coach of the Rough Riders, to come out after the game to say, Well, listen, you know, Garrett didn't mean anything by it. His fiancée's black. He's got black friends. I'm like, well, wait a minute here. Everybody else is saying the same thing. Like, no, that's not an excuse at all. What he said was insensitive and should be not in the game at all, not in our life at all. And I think he just added fuel to the fire. And ultimately, Saskatchewan apologized once the CFL came out with their penalty. And I thought... The Rough Riders really muffed it on this one. They should have came out, you know, the day after to say, you know, we apologize as a franchise for Garrett Marino's actions. We hope Jeremiah is going to be healthy sometime soon. Hope to see him on the field again. And that's it. And uh, for them to wait a week until the CFL to come out to have their penalty, I thought was the wrong decision.
0: Well, when you have this kind of extreme roughness. Um, at, you know, putting it mildly and Masoli is out for what, 10, 10 to 12, to 12 weeks. weeks. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be a quick way to, to put the kibosh on all of that by saying you did that you're at 10 to 12 too. Yeah.
1: That's a great debate that we've had for years in sports is, you know, whoever puts out another athlete for that length of time, that other athlete should sit for however many games and, you know, while on the surface it sounds good, if someone suffers a concussion, even through, you know, a high-impact incident, whether you meant to do it or not, some guys will still get a two-game suspension for, you know, hit to the head in hockey. If that guy's out for a whole year with a concussion, you know, it's too bad, but does that other person, should they get a whole year for that? I don't know. That's a, a slippery slope for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are accidents that happen in the game, and, and it happens in all sports, but, yeah. but sometimes when it's... Really directed? (laughs) Yeah,
1: the merino hit was no accident, that's for sure.
0: Absolutely. Rick, thanks so much for your time. You got it, anytime.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: There are some things that humans, well, all mammals, can't live without, and clean water is one of them. Most of us don't have to worry about access to water. We go to the tap, there it is. But that's not the case for everyone, and some, they live nearby. According to the website Water Today, There are 77 boil water advisories in effect. Two do-not-consume advisories. And two cyanobacteria bloom advisories. That is just Ontario. Abamangtung First Nation near Kenora is going to mark 20 years of a boil water advisory next month. It's an issue 17-year-old First Nations water advocate Autumn Peltier has been dedicating her young life to.
3: And I said something to him.
0: And what did you say to the prime minister?
3: I said... I'm very unhappy with the choices you've made, and he said, I understand that. And then I started crying, and all I got to say after that was the pipelines. (laughs) He said, I will protect the water. Do you believe that he will protect the water? Well, it's kind of hard to
0: say. That was Autumn back in 2016. as uh, She was to give uh, an offering of sorts, uh, a present to the Prime Minister, and she had her own agenda, and she's kept with that agenda ever since. In 2018, she addressed the United Nations, the first of two times she would do so.
3: I visited a northern community called Attawapiskat, which is located on the James Bay, and I spoke to kids, and they shared their concerns and what it was like for them. No child should have to experience not knowing what it's like what clean running water is. I have heard of places like Flint, Michigan, Six Nations in the, of the Grand River, all across these lands we, we know somewhere where someone can't drink the water. Why so many and why have they gone without water so long? I shared my thoughts with our Prime Minister and he promised me in 2016 he, will, he would look after the water and as a youth I will hold him or any future leader to the promise for my people. Children in Northern Ontario communities right now still can't drink their water. Water is a basic human right. We we all need to think about the planet and work together on solutions to reduce the impacts of human negligence.
0: And there are things that we can do to make an immediate impact on this crisis. Joining us now is Jeff Burnett. He's one of the executives at the Dreamcatcher Foundation. He's also head of affairs for Autumn Pelche. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me this morning.
4: Hi, Shona. So happy, happy to be here.
0: Well, this is a crisis that really ought to hit home with everybody because water is a basic necessity. And as Autumn said, it is a human right.
4: It is a human right. And, you know, outside of the stigma, oftentimes people assume it's far, far away. And uh, the reality is it's it's right here in our backyard. I I stand here today in in Burlington and uh, not less than or not more than 20 kilometers away. uh, These issues are the reality.
0: Absolutely. I saw a lot of orange shirts and flags saying every child matters following the discovery of the unmarked graves at residential schools across Canada. One of them, incidentally, the Mohawk Institute in Brantford. There was a lot of empathy that came out because of that, and rightly so. And what I'm hoping is that this empathy can be put into action on this issue.
4: Yeah, you know, it takes uh, only one person to speak up. And um, I often I often realize I, I take that from Autumn Pelletier, who, who decided at a young age to speak up. Um, and the more the more of us that speak up, uh, the latter we, we become as a voice and, and hopefully uh, recognized by federal parliament.
0: Well, there are a number of things that can be done, both short and long term. Um, and one of the things in the short term is uh, is a petition that you have on change.org.
4: Yeah, we, we started a petition uh, seven or eight months ago, um, you know, everybody really incredible the, the, the heart and passion people have, they, they all want to do something. Uh, the petition obviously uh, aimed at um, you know, bringing it to Parliament Hill and, and receiving, you know, public adoption and, and really just outcry the fact that this is still going on in 2022 outside of any quote unquote promises that were made. Um, and the petition, along with other platforms and, and conversation, uh, we do intend, with Autumn Peltier to deliver um, to Parliament um, in September.
0: Well, there's also another name that's associated with this petition, and it's a name that should be familiar in some way or level to a lot of people.
4: Joseph Brandt. Um, Joseph Brandt, for those that know, uh, Fine Warrior, um, really instrumental in in you know what exists today, um, and you know the name obviously synonymous across First Nations um, communities, of course.
0: Well, and you know when I took a look at the list, and, and you sent me some links. Um, Water today is is one of them, and you take a look at how long that list is of places in this province. Where they can't drink the water, there's a boil water advisory, or there's one that just says don't consume. That's shocking, that that's happening yeah. in this province where there's so much fresh water that should be available.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's uh, the, the 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 assumptions made that it's far, far away, and and although that's true, um, as you just mentioned, it, it's right here. Um, you know there, there's a lot of bias if you, you were to Google it and come across a federal website, um, describing you know the great strides they're taking. However, I'll, I'll leave the reservation nameless, but one recently, to according to the government, come off boil alert when we went out there. Um, and this is very close to major centers, um, only 60 percent, approximately 60 percent, had been lifted, and, and there was a three to four year plus uh period where the rest might might get hooked up to the treatment uh, treatment plant. But it's just, there's a lot of bias information and the government's uh, not being very polite about it.
0: Well, they're, they're trying to make it seem like more work may have been done on this file than has actually occurred.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as we know, politicians always have an agenda, um, good, bad, or indifferent. And, um, you know, th- this, of course, is just It's too important to uh, just talk about it. So we started to do actionable efforts um, all the while starting to get attention from the government and some some people looking over the fence and saying, you know, wow, there's a lot of people talking about this. And and if it's the votes they want, then uh, they better step up.
0: There's a, a great documentary that's available on Crave right now. It's called uh, The Water Walker. It's about Autumn Pelche and what she has done so far. One of the executive producers and the narrator is Graham Green, another name that should be very familiar to people. Um, And and one of the things, I mean, there was so much that really um, hit home and, and really made an impact about it. But one of it is when, you know, you go over to the tap, in some parts of this province, they turn it on and it's orange or brown,
4: yeah, I mean, the movie The Water Walker was produced a couple of years ago, obviously by our platform called Seeing Red Six Nations. And it really documented this girl's, you know, personal account of, you know, how she's grown up, what she came across as a young child, seeing boil water advisory alerts um, and taking that message to address the United Nations and, and global delegates. And again, you turn taps on and, and you see that type of water coming out, and while it is far north, it's it's right here. It's within the circles of our our major centers, and these unfortunate children and, and these people, they grew up thinking that's normal. That's um, just so wrong. So the movie is available on Crave, uh, Crave Canada, HBO Canada, and I'm, I'm more than happy to share it with others if they wanted to reach out. But it does tell a a telling sign of of What's really going on?
0: Well, and one of the things that I think is part of the reason why this is on my horizon and, and on the periphery, there's so much talk about opening up uh, the area of northern Ontario called the Ring of Fire, and you have to put a very expensive road in in order to um, gain access to the area. Uh, there are believed to be uh, rare minerals and and other mineable substances in that area, But, you know, the the First Nation that uh, Autumn mentioned in the piece that I aired called Attawapiskat, they've been dealing with um, a terrible water situation for a long time because of mining that had gone on in the area. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is that in all of this talk about building this road and the jobs it's going to create and, you know, the mining and natural resources that can be uh, accessed up there, you know, there isn't always a lot of work that goes into making sure that there isn't pollution that comes out of all of this. That always seems to be one of the last things that's considered. And it really should be one of the first.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes when when Autumn is is traveling and she's in front of many, many um, adults and and youth, and and, you know, oftentimes you sit there and you see people drinking a glass of water. Um, It's just so so normal to, to see. Yet, that never seems to be a priority when they're you know, making these announcements or doing doing what they call the work. Um, I have a glass of water in front of me and I'm thankful for it. And if, and if you do, I'm sure you are. And I- others, uh, unfortunately, have to purchase that water. And, and, you know, there was a time at the height of COVID, and Autumn speaks about it often, when, when we were scrutinized for not washing our hands after we touched anything. Well, imagine having to come home and wash your hands while someone pours bottled water over your hands because you can't wash your hands under the tap unfortunate.
0: Yeah. Um, Jeff, you've really kind of realigned your life to be involved in this issue and in this cause. What what hit your heart that made you reorganize your life?
4: Geez, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I'd say, you know, I'm looking at a, a picture of my uh, I get emotional about it actually. yeah.
0: I, I'm sorry if I touched too much of a nerve and I got too personal.
4: No, 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 not at all. Uh, I sit in front of a picture of my youngest child, like two two children, seven and, and four, and um, you know they 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 get the opportunity to to, to access clean clean water, while others don't. <clears throat> so I decided to uh, to step in and really work alongside some fantastic people at Healthy First Nations and Dreamcatcher Charitable, Seeing Red Six Nations, some real fine leaders and um you know who, who really want to make a difference and uh, to be a part of that i'm fortunate incredibly lucky but when i look at my two children you know there's there so many children that don't get those opportunities and, and i'm talking about water it's not like you know get to go to the sizzler here so yeah i, I kind of really align realigned myself and stepped up in any way I could to to drive this forward.
0: Well, I mentioned earlier that there was an outpouring of empathy um, when the news broke about not only that there were unmarked graves at um, residential schools across Canada, um, but there's something that you can do for kids now, kids that are living in these situations. If you had empathy for that, have empathy for this as well. And the first thing you can do is, is sign that petition at change.org. Um, which will help create, hopefully, a long-term solution. But there's another temporary measure, and that is uh, a project to have water water filters um, put into First Nations homes.
4: That's right. Um, you know, a very reputable um, politician under the Liberal government told me uh, not long ago, you know, the government can't chew gum and walk at the same time. And uh, not so much speaking ill of his own government, but they have a long-term plan. Unfortunately, that long-term plan is taking too long. And so we've decided, a dream catcher, um, along with our, our great friends at Healthy First Nations, to to really step up and take action, you know, and fill this short-term gap, the short-term solution where let's just access clean water in the homes. Um, and so we've partnered with a very large, substantial humanitarian water company who who does these initiatives in the, the Amazon, and in the, in the Nile, like some of the remote, remote places in the world. And uh, we decided that we would, um, you know, align partnerships with councils uh, across First Nations. Um, right now, of course, very active in um, Six Nations of the Grand River, where we're gifting um, water filters to homes. And, you know, we've climbed well over 100. You know, if there's four to five people in a home, you can do the math. It's a lot of people now that have the opportunity to uh to access clean water. You know, the, the biggest challenge is people have been conditioned their whole lives to not trust it. And and a filter's not going to change that, but just a little bit more hope that you know we care and, and it's it's just such a fundamental right to have water. So that's what we're doing. And and we've started on Six Nations of the Grand River. We have many, many, many uh ahead. Um and, and, and we're really excited and and although heartbroken, I have to do it, but the government's not doing it. So we decided to do it.
0: So where can people get more information and how can they participate?
4: Yes. Um, a great starting point would be the Dreamcatchers uh, website and the water page, which is DCfund.CA. I'm sure you can we can put that on the site um, slash waterfunding. Um, you know, for those on Instagram, you can certainly, if you haven't already follow Autumn Peltier, um, you know, she's of course the water protector and, and known globally and travels the world talking about it. Um, her message is very profound and, and, you know, I'm happy to provide my email. Um, but you know, those two places, uh, would be a great, a great starting point. The petition obviously, um, which is just a small action, uh, for those that wanted to support and, you know. This is something that we're doing on our own um, until the government wants to step in and and support and help. And and we're looking for partnerships. But at the same time, there are some brands and organizations that have reached out and want to donate to the water fund. Um, And and that's, it's fantastic. Uh, They realize that it's just ridiculous and it's gone on too long. And this isn't about jumping on a bandwagon. This is just stepping up and stepping in and trying to help. And I'm more than, again, more than happy to provide my contact information. Anyone can reach out to me, if not Autumn Peltier or Dreamcatcher's website.
0: I think the Dreamcatcher's website might be a great place to start or change.org uh, for that petition, because that's, uh, the goal is to get that uh, into the hands of politicians in, in Parliament um, at the end of September. So signing that now would be a great way to uh, to push that forward.
4: Yeah, that's a great. That's a great point. And you know, last year Truth and Reconciliation Day, um, an indiv- a certain individual decided to go surfing instead, um, which behooves me to know that that would be something to do. However, uh, we're looking forward to this uh, September and 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 making a little bit of a noise uh, down on on Parliament Hill. Um, and one thing we will bring is is, is our petition, of course.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, again, uh, that starts at change.org. To sign the petition, uh, go to the Dreamcatcher Foundation website um, and, and make a donation because this can change. And it's up to each of us to be able to be a part of that change. Um, if you think that it's, it's awful that there are over 80 water advisories in effect, in this province, where there should be so much fresh water and clean water available to everybody. This is a way that you can actually uh, put your empathy into action and make a real difference. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Shorter, thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Anytime. Jeff Burnett, one of the executives at the Dreamcatcher Foundation. He's also head of affairs for Autumn Pellier, the water advocate.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.